the European Union really a union at all? Or is it a dysfunctional family of countries that can't solve their unemployment crisis? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. There's no denying that the economies of the 28 countries that make up the European Union are in terrible shape. They might differ in the severity of the problem, but all are facing an employment crisis that has been brought about by bad policy, overregulation, and bureaucratic gridlock. That's the view of my guest today, Robin Chater, Secretary General of the Federation of International Employers. He lays out the details of a situation that has caused a 56% unemployment rate among the youth of Spain. The rate among workers in all EU countries is 10%, still unacceptably high, and that doesn't even account for the huge pool of part-timers in the so-called gray economy. Chater offers his opinion of what fragmented EU governments need to do to address this worsening problem. Assuming, of course, that the very structure of the EU and the Eurozone isn't the culprit. So here is my conversation with Robin Chater. Robin Shader, welcome to the program. Hello. Would you please describe for me uh, the mission of the Federation of International Employers? We're an organization that was set up um, more than 25 years ago to help companies that operate uh, in more than one country all around the world. We started off with a focus on Europe. Um, and the kind of help we give is mainly in the form of uh, um, uh, support uh, and information on uh, employment laws and uh, tax issues and labor relations issues and all the kind of things that you need to do from a sort of people point of view um, when you go into a new country. Uh, a lot of organizations continue to use us um, for information um, about the operations that they, they continue to, to run in those countries. Um, we're a lot cheaper than than law firms, so um, it's and, and we're here at the end of uh, one telephone call for pretty much any any of the principal countries around the world and pretty much all the countries of Europe. So, what kind of companies make up your membership? Well, well, they're all big multinational companies. Um, I don't think we've got a, an employer employing less than two hundred people, but our largest employers are approaching uh, half a million employees. Um, big companies like, uh, well, we're chaired by the Ford Motor Company, uh, by the HR director for um, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And um, we have other large companies like Toyota, um, Tata, and people uh, around the world who, um, you know, large pharmaceutical and oil companies. Um, uh, pretty much every sector is, is covered. Uh, the average number of employees is around eight to 9,000. So you can see that uh, they are substantial operations. Recently, you've done some very provocative writing on the employment situation in the European Union. Would you describe for me, in your opinion, what is the plight of today's EU worker? 
Well, I mean, it's difficult with writing about a social issue from an employer's point of view, because usually employers are pretty much indifferent to this. I'm not being cruel to employers, but really, um, you know, a, a large labor pool is an advantage to, you know, uh, an employer looking at it purely from an instrumental point of view. But there are some major problems with the EU economy, and that is having its largest impact upon uh, unemployment and underemployment also. So we've got um, something in the region of, um, uh, well, it's the last count, 216 million workers in, in, in the European Union, 28 countries of the European Union. Um, and the unemployment rate uh, affects about 10% of them, which uh, compared with the States, the United States, of course, is, uh, is, is quite high. But then you look at it more closely and you find that there are 10 million workers who are working part-time uh, and we have a very high proportion of workers who work part-time in the European Union. Um, uh, and a large number of those people would want to work full-time if they could. They, they're available. They're not, strictly speaking, unemployed, but they are, if you might say, un underemployed. So we've got a hidden labor pool of them. And the other big problem that we have is youth unemployment. Again, youth unemployment is, is, um, doesn't seem to be too... Um, a, a much a problem overall. But when you look at individual countries and you start to see how it affects the future development of the economy, it, it does have significant uh, impacts. For instance, the um, general level of un, uh, uh, youth unemployment, instead of being 10%, is nearer 20% in the European Union. And in some countries, for, for instance, in Spain, it's 54%. So that's more than half the population of 15 to 24-year-olds who are not in education or training, who don't have a job and want a job. So that's half the po over half the population of one whole generation, if you like, coming through not having a proper job. The only things they can often get are under-the-table employment, um, you know, cash payments for for temporary jobs, that's the most they can hope for. And many, um, many of these people are, have university degrees, and many of them speak different languages. And so, therefore, the problem is even greater if you consider the fact that some of the people who've got higher levels of qualification and can speak other uh, languages have already moved away from Spain. So the, actually, the problem is probably something around 60 to 70 percent of the, of, the, of, the, of the true population. To what extent are EU employment laws to blame for this state of affairs? I think largely to blame. You get into a vicious circle, particularly in countries like Spain and, and, and Poland and so on, where children grow up, see other people who go on in education, don't do that well, end up on, on the scrap heap at a very early age. And so they therefore drop out of school early, which of course compounds the problem. But um, the, the real nub of the issue is strict employment laws. We don't have a hire and fire at will regime in, in Europe. It's very regulated. It's not too bad in countries like uh, Switzerland, um, even Germany is not too bad, and the UK and Ireland certainly, uh, although we don't have an employment at will regime, we have a far more relaxed one than the rest of Europe. But in places like Spain, there are heavy penalties for making somebody unemployed. So even after a relatively short period in employment, once you've got through your probationary period, it's worked out on, uh, on uh, days of payment per year of service. And it can amount to over 40 days per year of service in some cases. So an employer is not really attracted to 
take on people on a permanent basis. More than half of the jobs that are being on offer, on offer in places like Spain are uh, fixed-term contracts. So the restrictions come from government and not from unions, right? Yes, yes. It's not come. Well, obviously, unions do influence government, and they do have a disproportionate influence on EU decisions. I mean, we have this two-tier arrangement, a bit like the USA, with federal laws and then state laws. We have the European Union, which is um, not quite the USA, but uh, in Brussels, directives are formed and agreed, and they set minimum terms for most things. Uh, in employment. We don't actually have a directive on, uh, on redundancy, but there are strict rules in relation to uh, working time and all the other things that uh, exist. And then countries have to implement these at their own level, and they can actually be tighter than what is formed in Brussels. So a country can, for instance, have working time rules which say the maximum working week is um, 40 or 48. But as in France, for instance, they can, countries can come along and say, no, it's going to be 35, which, of course, puts an extra burden on employers, too, because an employer can't be that flexible with, with a workforce when the maximum working week is 35. Or even if you add permitted overtime hours, it's probably amounting to 39 a week. Whereas in the UK, you can work beyond 48 hours with the agreement of the employees. So it's a very different working environment. So it's not just rules in relation to, to, to sackings staff. It's also rules in relation to employing them more generally, which are the problem. So what is the gray economy in the EU today? Is that just a massive pool of workers who are actually employed under the table, so to speak, and therefore yeah. not paying taxes on their income? Yeah. And, and, how, and how serious is that problem? It can amount to, um, in some countries, in excess of uh, 40% of uh, gross domestic product. Greece, it's difficult because it's a gray economy to put a figure on it because by definition, it's secret. But there are ways of working out how much it probably is, because you can see the kind of tax revenue you would imagine that uh, should be generated by a population, given its earnings capacity and so on, and how much is actually generated. For instance, in Greece, you have a double problem. You have corruption and bribery coupled with undeclared work. And that can amount to pretty much sort of chaos, really. Anyone who's self-employed in Greece has traditionally not really paid any tax. And there's a high proportion of the population, I can't remember, I think it's something like a third of the population who was self-employed. And then a large proportion of the, of the people in the private sector will be paid under the table in different ways, um, whether it's in brown envelopes or some other way. Also, bribery, of course, is rife in, in, in Greece. It's the worst country of all. It's actually... Um, been calculated that the average bribe is about 2,000 euros, which is like $3,000. So that, of course, is, a, is, is not taxed because it's illegal anyway. And then you've got all kinds of other things like illegal immigration. It's a very, very porous border that Greece has with, um, with places like Turkey and, of course, North Africa, with people coming across to Greek islands like Crete. So, and there's a lot of corruption and, uh, and so on associated with that, and a lot of illegal employment as a consequence of, uh, of these workers, as, of course, the USA has with Mexican workers and so on. So um, we have our own problems. Those people who are caught are obviously sent back, but a high proportion of people do get into the economy, um, and, and these people aren't taxed, and neither are they uh, subject to the labor laws that permanent workers enjoy that are certainly giving people high standards of living. So you really have a real, very distinct underclass in Europe. 
But then you have the problem of immigration from, as you say, Turkey and that area into Greece, but then also the problem of immigration from southern Europe into northern Europe as well. That's been a political hot potato for quite a while, has it not? Yeah, I, I think that's been, that was the first one. I mean, the Mediterranean countries have exported a lot of workers to our advantage, in fact. Um, um, we wouldn't have a hospitality sector if we didn't have those sort of skills available to us. But also, uh, it's more in recent years from Eastern Europe, which this is a political issue, from Eastern Europe um, into Western Europe, because, of course, the European Union has expanded from an original core group of seven through to 15, which it was for many, many years, and now is 28. And the latest member is Croatia. I mean, a lot of the former Iron Curtain countries are now part of the European Union. And, of course, um, job opportunities are far, far greater and pay levels are far higher in Western Europe. Germany has its own particular problem because, of course, it was uh, divided by the Cold War and then, of course, it integrated. And you'd think that um, it would be proud to have uh, its, its other half recoupled with, you know, with Western Germany. But still, Eastern German workers are not paid and treated at the same kind of level, although they're supposed to be, as those in, in West Germany. So there's a kind of underclass developed there within Germany, coupled with the fact that there's Gastarbeiter in Germany from, from, from Turkey, who are all, there's over a million of those who are not really many, many of them receiving uh, these kind of high levels of employment protection and so on that are enjoyed by uh, native workers. Can some of these problems be traced to the very roots of the European Union and the Eurozone itself? Are there aspects of that formation that were fatally flawed and thereby causing problems today? Well, the original group of, um, of European Union, as it was called the common market uh, countries, were the affluent countries. Or they weren't actually that affluent when they formed in 57 because, of course, it was the aftermath of the Second World War. And really, um, when uh, it, was, it was formed, it was, um, it, was, it, it was really to try and stop Germany and, and France particularly being at war again, because they'd been at war many times in the last hundred years. A part of that was seen to be a sort of rise in wealth of, of some of the larger industrial uh, enterprises and also uh, differences in uh, income it, within the populations, causing an instability and uh, the ability of Hitler and so on to come forward. So really after the war, these countries who were sort of recovering from the war and had done quite well in doing so came together. And it certainly did stimulate because the, thing to go, the first thing to go down were tariff barriers. And that meant that um, lots and lots of countries could start trading freely with each other. And that had an enormous stimulation on the economies of those countries. But, of course, gradually other countries joined. And, it, as it, and they joined as it became less and less a, a free trade area and more and more a kind of United States of Europe with all kinds of regulations, including um, employment regulations, which were kind of an afternote, really, to the formation of the European Union. It wasn't sort of on the forefront, but it has become a foref on the forefront of the development of, of, of the EU. But in retrospect, does, does it seem to you to make sense to impose a common currency over a series of countries whose economies are so radically disparate in terms of their strength? Uh, is that itself a mistake? In a way, no. I mean, in the same, same way as the United States of America has benefited from having a foreign currency. And, and I mean, the EU accounts for just over 7% of the world population.
for a lot of small countries, really. I mean, even Germany, which is the largest country in Europe by population, has a minuscule population, something in the region of 80 million, uh, compared with the US and even Japan, really, is smaller than Japan. But the EU accounts for 23% of GDP in the world, which is actually slightly bigger than the USA. And having so significant an economy with a common currency has uh, helped to stimulate economic growth. Um, I, I think arguably the situation would have been far worse if we'd stayed with our currencies for the last, um, the last downturn. I mean, there are arguments on both sides, but I think generally speaking, if you're in business, as I am and, and work with people in business, having a common currency, I mean, the, ironically, the UK isn't in the EU, but um, makes it much, much easier to do business and to, um, and to trade and have one, one bank account. And banks were taking a large slice of, uh, of trading um, in exchange rates and so on. It, was, it, was, it really wasn't a happy situation. Some of the countries are tiny. You know, we've got populations of, of six, seven million. I mean, little old Luxembourg's half, half a million people, the size of a, a reasonable-sized town in America. So, and that's a whole country with its own prime minister and so on. Having its own currency didn't make any sense. And yet imposing, again, imposing a common currency over a region that has no flexible labor market, that has no true political union, doesn't that create a series of problems that you're paying for today? It does. I mean, in a way, either the EU needs to go the full hog and become the United States of Europe with those sort of controls, or it really needs to take into account the fact that its ambitions are really misguided. You can have a European Union with a common currency without necessarily having to have all the labor laws. You, they're not, they don't necessarily come together. I think that trying to find a fudge somewhere in the middle hasn't really helped. And um, I think some of the, I, I feel some of the, some of the nations of Europe have really compounded some of the problems for the small, small joining com, uh, countries. The, the other thing is that these countries that have joined have uh, benefited greatly from uh, being part of a, a larger zone. And, and, of course, they get lots of aid, particularly agricultural aid from the European Union. And, uh, you know, it's a whole issue within Germany about how much Germany is propping up the rest of Europe, which is true. I mean, France gets far too much subsidy from the European Union. That's because it was, it's all political, it, because it was there at the beginning and it managed to fix it. The UK has a rebate, which it doesn't really deserve. It's all kinds of political gerrymandering going on. And it's not a really happy situation. We don't have a stable United States of Europe at all. We have this fudge and, and uh, the, Europe, the Eurozone put on top of the fudge makes a very unhappy situation. And also on top of uh, quite different cultures and languages, you write uh, in, in some of your pieces about how um, different languages, just one in Spain, they won't admit to speaking French or one way or the other, even oh, if they absolutely. do. You know, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, <laughs> you go across the border um, uh, from France to Spain through the Pyrenees through a tunnel halfway through the, through the Pyrenees and the higher Pyrenees and go through the tunnel. On one side, it's absolutely French speaking, the only time they do in their local markets in the, for the few towns on the border have some Spanish um, produce there on sale by Spanish workers bringing stuff in, farmers rather. Um, but generally speaking, when you, 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 you cross to the first town, there's no one speaking French or understanding French. And in fact, they are not great linguists, generally speaking, on either side. It's, there's not, um, 
They are not like the Scandinavians who, who, who almost speak English to each other as, by default. Um, or the, the Dutch, I just come back uh, two days ago from the Netherlands, and they, they speak English better than I do. <laughs> so it's, 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 uh, it, and so it, all around the Mediterranean, there is a kind of linguistic problem. And it goes down to small things like road signs. You know, they refuse to put up uh, on, on the French side. Um, a signpost to Zaragoza, which is the first city you come to in the, you go through the middle of the Pyrenees. They just put Spain. <laughs> not gonna put, and on the other side, it's the same. It's, it's really quite ridiculous. Even the sat-navs uh, conspire. You have to keep changing your sat-nav up country by country. That hasn't even gone, um, <laughs> gone over to the European Union yet. So there are all kinds of miniature restrictions that continue. And cultural restrictions too and you know they they charge differences in in petrol prices so when you're coming over from spain into into france you um you know it's quite a lot of petrol stations <laughs> as you come in because they're charging slightly less and so they're doing a roaring trade in in things that they they can have a slight advantage on um so we're not really one common market at all uh, we're just a set of rivals who've made a compromise really so to get back to the employment situation, what would you propose be done now, even given the natural restrictions that exist and given the, the economic uh, problems that everyone is facing? What are some steps that can be taken to improve the situation that you described? I think that instead of uh, the European Union being concerned about establishing uh, minimum labor standards, which they've pretty much done now since 1992, I think there should be um, a move to see if they can actually look at um, maximum <laughs> standards in some cases, like unemployment compensation. There ought to be standards imposed which make it, um, make it more difficult. I mean, as the, we know in the USA and in the UK and in Switzerland, where a, there is a genuine free open labor market, there's nothing to fear about um, having uh, relatively low levels of employment protection. Because people move around. They, it's not good for people to be in most jobs for very long. I mean, if you're in a job for five, ten years, that's fine. You've contributed. Move, move on. Um, the more labor movement there is, the, uh, the more skill growth there is because people are getting experience in other organizations, getting training in different jobs. It's generally good for the economy. But there's this colossal fear in the European Union about having these people who are, uh, you know, marginal workers who are not secure and, and so on and, and trying to bolster them up instead of removing this altogether and saying, look, there's nothing to fear. Um, all you need to worry about is make, making sure your skill level is good. So put the effort into improving education and training and take the, uh, take the limits away from, uh, uh, from employment protection. Does the answer lie in Brussels, or do some of these steps, yeah. can they be taken in, in the individual governments? Well, I think that individual governments need to do something. There's not actually any uh, minimum standards on, um, uh, on, on compensation set by the European Union. Ironically, on uh, dismissal generally, there's um, only consultation periods in terms of mass redundancy. That's the only thing they set. So this isn't actually coming from the EU. The, the gap actually exists in the EU to start to Im impose some kind of norms if they're not rules on individual governments to stop them having uh, disproportionate compensation, which is killing their labor markets. They were quick to move on uh, countries that were about to default, like Greece and Spain and Portugal, to try and impose austerity upon these countries. 
But what they weren't really strongly doing, although there, there was some uh, movement to try and dismantle some of the employment protection measures a little bit, uh, they weren't really putting enough pressure on them. And I think there needs to be more generally upon the, the whole of the European Union to try and um, make it a much more open, flexible labor market. Well, do you think that politically that's going to happen? Uh, do you think that uh, if the economy continues to drag, there might be more of an incentive to make some, uh, make some changes in this direction? Well, they can all see the effects uh, of, of having uh, very relatively small levels of uh, employment protection because the UK economy has got less unemployment than uh, most of the rest of the European Union. And uh, it's, uh, it's got GDP, significant GDP growth. Ironically, although people think that Germany is, has high levels of employment protection, it's not that significant uh, compared with most of the countries around it. And that is having, uh, having a, an enormous amount of uh, uh, economic growth compared with its, uh, its neighbors. So I, I think the, you know, the message, the writing's on the wall, really, for all, all the countries around uh, uh, these more relaxed uh, nations, uh, that, that they really need to dismantle all these things that are, that are damaging their economy. And it's largely labor, labor restrictions uh, and inflexibilities in labor, which uh, is, is the culprit. Well, Robin Shader, I want to thank you so much for being with us today to describe the situation, the employment situation in the EU, and also sketch out some possible solutions. Thank you very much for being with us today. Okay, pleasure. That was my conversation with Robin Chater of the Federation of European Employers. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where all of our episodes are now available. Just search for Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.